Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Let's get ready to rumble! And welcome to Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say live on the air. Call us on 847-866-WNUR. That's 847-866-9687. Or you can leave us a message on 224-2189-BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. You get to sound off on our Chalk Talk segment. You get to show off by taking our Opera Pop quiz. And you get to piss people off by handing out letter grades to review a performance you've seen on our Monday evening quarterback segment. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. This week, we go inside the huddle with an early music specialist, soprano Erica Schuler. Find out about her specialized training in foot and hand positions and how it led her to become a star of Chicago's Haymarket Opera Company and the 2017 Boston Early Music Festival. But first, we take a look at the recent burst of opera activity outside the U.S. They're building new opera houses in the United Arab Emirates and in Turkey, while the London Coliseum, home of English National Opera, is hosting the Shanghai Opera and its premiere of a new work. So what's the rationale behind this geographic expansion of the art form? Is this the beginning of a new trend? Plus, it's our first listener-generated pop quiz. Kenny from Michigan puts together the questions. Tobias and Giovanna team up to see if they can beat him. And at the bottom of the hour, I've got all your opera headlines. Let's do this. We're live. No edits, no filters. Kickoff is next. Keep it locked right here, right now on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, and Opera Box Score. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hey, everybody. George Cedarquist here. Welcome to our show and welcome to Tobias Wright. George, did yes. you watch Game 7 of the NBA Finals last <laughs> night? Dude, I, actually, I did. I watched the end of the third quarter and then the end of the fourth. It was Amazing. For those of you who aren't even sports fans, it was historical. Get on the YouTubes, look it up, watch five minutes of LeBron James being amazing. And why was it historical? Because it was game seven. A team was down 3-1. They came back. They won on the road. They won three straight games in the finals. They had to win to go home. LeBron James is amazing. And there are people who hate LeBron. And you know what? They're wrong. Uh, you're one of those haters or not? No. I yeah. love watching history, and I love appreciating something masterful. Someone was going to go home unhappy in that game. I mean, that's always the case with the finals, but, I mean, this time, Golden State, having lost so few games this season, you just knew that someone was going to go home in tears. Oh, it was amazing, though. It couldn't have gone... It, well, I'm sure there's heartbreak for Golden State, but for just sports fans in general, kind of like opera fans, you want to go see everybody. You just want to see the art form, or in this case, the sport, at its highest possible level. And last night, it was at its highest possible That's level. That's what that it was. was. so dope. There's no question. Giovanna Jacques, did you watch the NBA Finals? You literally just sounded like you were speaking Mandarin. I didn't understand <laughs> a word you guys just said. <laughs> no, I did not. Okay, what were you doing last night? Uh, I was having a really wonderful pizza, mar- pizza making party with some good girlfriends. Yes. And we had burrata, and we made pizza, and... It was really wonderful. Were you drinking? Outside. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. We made these really good tequila limeade drinks. Yeah. Man, I had a margarita a couple weeks ago when my brother was in town, and boy, did it give me a headache. Are you still hungover? Oh, I told you guys that? <laughs> a week later. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to get right into the meat of the show here. Enough about our drinking habits. Uh, so I was reading these articles. They all came up on my feed this week, all about the expansion of opera into the East. And, and that's a very general term because what these countries are as uh, Dubai is in the process of building a 2,000-seat opera house. Uh, five years ago in Oman, an opera house was opened, and that was, apart from the Cairo Opera House, the only other opera house in the Middle East. So you've got Cairo, built in 1988, the one in Oman that was built five years ago, and now this one in Dubai. Plus, Turkey has now just announced that it is building its own opera house as well. And again, Turkey in the Middle East, not really. It's clearly not in Europe either. I mean, I don't know where Turkey kind of lands on your map, Tobias. Well, it, I, now it lands on my map of, you know, destinations for opera. And I think that's fantastic. And you want to talk about something that was surprising to me. And we, George, you and I discussed it a little bit. And Giovanna, you were there just before the show. But in doing research for this particular segment, finding out that there wasn't opera in the Middle East, uh, when you think that people have been there for thousands of years, that was surprising to me that this art form, which has been around for hundreds of years, has never really quite um, made its way into that society. So I'm excited to see this happening, even but if it... Go th- ahead. Think about how many Eastern art forms that have been around for thousands of years aren't in Western culture. Absolutely. I mean, I know that there is that perspective. Yeah. I'm just, from the opera perspective, I did find it surprising when we think of it as such an international art form that is influenced by so many different countries that it hadn't, that there are, uh, and I guess maybe it isn't surprising. That's just ignorant on my part. <laughs> Happily ignorant, though. Um, but the fact that it, it it's not everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's exciting for me to see this happen. It's, it seems to me that the reason these opera houses are starting to be built uh is that opera has this way of of bringing I don't know the highbrow of the arts world to the community that it's in, right? And in America, this is now becoming a problem. Like we've talked about it on the show before, is that people are trying to get opera out of the opera house now. Like the edifice of the opera house is getting in the way for the development of the art form in America. But in, say, the Middle East, building an opera house, this one in Oman, the guy who built it, uh, this is his quote, it's truly a 16th century Italian opera house. Mm -hmm. So clearly, at least in this guy's words, that was in Oman, what they're trying to do is get like the pure European uh, 16th century. It's not really the, the Renaissance. Well, it's sort of the Renaissance, I guess. They're trying to sort of bring that highbrow quality to their culture. Am I am I right here? I hear what you're saying. And I think. Uh, you know, uh, back to sports, since we already talked about that, any new city that gets a sports franchise has an expansion team. Um, and an expansion team is just that. It's new. It's an expansion of something that already exists. It's not going to be on the same level with everything else that has previously existed in that league. And I think the same could probably assume, probably be assumed about some of these opera houses in that this is a new adventure into an old art form. Um, and so for them to say, you know, the 16th century uh, Italian style opera house, I mean, they're trying to capture uh, an essence of uh, w- uh, the cradle of where art, this art form really took off. And we think of, you know, opera and oftentimes we think of the early Italian opera. No question. I think for, for the sake of opera's expansion, this is really great news. But I, I can't I can't lie and say that when I read this, I there wasn't a small part of me that was a little disappointed. Why? Because how come... There's such a westernification, that's not a word, but I just made it. I know what you mean. And there's no, we're not getting an exchange, you know? it's It just seems a little bit, a little bit. That's interesting. White, heavy handed of like, this is our culture. You should like it because it represents highbrow culture. And but this is how being... to be. And I, I've just, and I, and there's only a small part of me that thinks this, like 25%. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying, though. And, you know, if you read this article that is from The uh, Economist, I, we'll put the link on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. Uh, the writer says, Performing opera in countries that are not part of the Western cultural history may be cultural imperialism initiated by the country's rulers rather than an enlightened offering to their residents. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of your point, right? Yeah. 
is that it, uh, we sort of forcing Western culture sort of beautifully packaged to folks that it's like, like countries maybe don't rulers, care. right? Not the United States rulers. Countries <laughs> rulers, meaning the con- exactly the countries yeah. that that the opera houses are being built in. No, and I know that I sound dumb saying that, but my point was that it's it's these decisions, however democratic or not they might be, but they're being made by people who are there. Yes, who, they're who, being made by people who are there, who are in partnerships and political partnerships with first world countries and European countries and American countries. And I'm sure there's some part of them that wants to appeal to being more, you know, it's more you want to be popular. You're in high school. You want to be one of the popular kids. But you like, if dress you wanted like to be more popular, kid. go ahead and I, I mean, make sure that you have a venue where Britney Spears and Justin. I said Britney Spears. But they Spears already did. do. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I went. <laughs> but if but you want to be popular, do that of- to drive your economy. Don't open an opera house because, as we know here and in Europe, it's not like opera houses are going to set your economy on fire or suddenly make you some destination. No, but it brings allure, and that's something that we're so used to having as as first world inhabitants of of just having this allure like yes we have access to opera be it as easy as it is um and you know we have this this availability of everything and a lot of countries don't have that and so having opera just makes it sound like oh i'm i'm you know i'm very fancy i'm very highbrow i have this added artistic but what Side if what if opera went to these Eastern countries um, or into the Middle East in a different form that wasn't a brand new opera house that wasn't being made by these rulers? But what if, I mean, would that be would you have a problem with that if Chicago Fringe Opera was performing? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, no, I, it's not that I even have a problem with it. I just I'm I am a little disappointed to see that only Western operas are on the docket for these. Okay. And there's no it, it's kind of this this mass it, culture that's spreading. And, and I realize that opera is not part of the mass culture in the U S though. It might be more in Europe. There's just a part of me that was, that didn't see this as completely rosy. It just, there's a part of me that just, well, it's you know odd. What? I, I wish actually... we were getting more of, you know, of an experience of what Istanbul does in the art scene or more of an experience of, of Dubai's art scene or the, the Arab, you know, I'm sure there are some incredible Arab, Arab, like musical mm-hmm. legends, and I know nothing about them. And yeah, part of that is my own fault for not expanding my horizons, but it's not easily accessible. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the Arab countries and then this Western art form, and they did, they did mention in one of the articles, and George, you said we'd post this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from The Economist. Um, there's, there, it, it, there are behind the curve in what will be programmed. Um, because, and he even mentions it, Mr. Hope here, he says, you know, this is a Muslim country, and am I going to go out and find a shocking production? No, I won't. And it specifically mentions, um, you know, different different tales, uh, immoral tales, like the likes of Wagner's uh, Tristan and Isolde and the unfaithful Carmen. So, I mean, there's things... Dude, I don't know if you can call that being behind the curve. I mean, if you look at some of the repertoire, the, some of the singers, Domingo, Ana Maria Martinez... I was my, speaking my, of repertoire. Okay, well then, let's look at the repertoire. Lohengrin, Romeo e Juliet, uh, L'Italiana in Algeri. I mean, these are not... These are very standard rep pieces. Yeah, but he makes a point, is that it doesn't culturally fit in to what might be, like, the standards of what is... It might be culturally shocking, I mean, you can't. Who is it that that really beautiful Chinese Lucy Liu got banned from China for what having her a scene in a bikini? Mm-hmm. You know, there are mm-hmm. certain cultural mm-hmm. rules that maybe Mozart's Notte de Figaro will offend. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, the other thing about the audience out there is, frankly, these a lot of these countries in the United Arab Emirates, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc., are full of expatriates. Mm-hmm. You know, and full of probably a lot of English speakers, Americans, um, Brits, uh, Italians, Germans, Spaniards, yeah. who they they want it, right? Like, there they mm-hmm. are. They're in their home away from home. They're probably kind of homesick. They want to hear something in their language. They want to hear some music, which maybe is part of their childhood or part of their culture growing up because they grew up in Europe, because that was part of their culture as a kid. And so then these opera houses are able to give to these large expat communities kind of a little bit of comfort food for their ears. Mm-hmm. And I don't... I. I guess, Giovanna, the more I sit here and think about it, the more I really see your point. Um, 
as part of an interruption of society as, as that's already been functioning mm-hmm. without this. And I understand that um, for my, for me though, and for me and how much I love this art form, I think that a, an expansion is beautiful because it just means more people will hear it. Oh, and like I said, I'm happy yeah. about this for the opera world. I wish there was an exchange. Exactly. I wish it was less dominated and more like, oh, let's do this because we want to learn about this. But in return, let us put on this beautiful, culturally appropriate opera that we've written that no one in Europe or the U.S. knows anything about. That's an interesting point. You know, art is an exchange. Uh, Because I don't think often enough we have enough artists who think that way, who think, I will share this only with, you know, I, I need to also be shared with. Mm-hmm. I, that has to be part of my expression yeah. is you returning to me. And that's, I, you know, it'd be, boy, how cool would it be if more people thought that way? Yeah. Know? I certainly, I'm guilty of not always feeling that way, but I, I think sometimes as artists, I, I think we get stuck and we just want to share. And we're so enthused to share. That we forget that, to receive. Yeah. Yeah, and I think especially the Dubai Opera House really, I mean, I know that that the battle here is to get opera out of the opera houses, like George said, and to make it less highbrow. But up in those very, very wealthy societies, opera remains a, a, a kind of glamour. I mean, yeah. Kim Kardashian totally just true. went to the to Milan, right? Uh, Rome, yeah. Uh, to Rome. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't care about opera. I can guarantee you that. But it looks really, really good, and it's very highbrow, and it just seems a little bit... And look at just what the rep that they're putting on. They're not really trying anything new. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's so though, very if you standard. Take, if, you w- if this weren't to be in the Middle East, though, I'd, I'd be curious to have your response on that. Because I think of uh, certain cities here in the United States um, that have built new opera houses and what it's meant for them as cities, as communities, and economically what it's meant. as a Or also, you know, you get back to the communal part about it, a, a source of pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope maybe there can be that kind you know, we're specifically in Turkey. The Dubai thing is, I think, interesting. But in Turkey, if that yeah. performing arts um, center could then become a huge point of pride amongst the people, I think mm-hmm. that'd be fantastic, regardless of what art comes in or comes out of it. The site in Turkey was originally um, uh, the first opera house there and like sort of a multi-purpose cultural center. And and it's apparently like hideously ugly. And it was it's built in like, the Stalin, Stalin's design. Exactly, right. Yeah, it was inspired by Stalinist designs and it built in the 60s, kind of poured concrete type of thing. You can look at the photo on, on our website. Uh, and so that's kind of going away. Um, but it's interesting, again, that like of all the things that you would build as a country to would be an opera house, not like an art gallery or a stadium or a school or something like that, but or even a concert hall, right? Because we're, we're even splitting hairs here between like <clears throat> classical music being performed in a concert hall and like the actual opera house itself. And it's so. called an opera house. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This, it's going to be Europe's largest opera house, mm-hmm. which is going to be built in this part of um, Istanbul. Does it say how many it's going to seat? I wonder what what is the biggest opera house in Europe right now? Then do you think? Well, I don't know. If it says two thousand, uh, no, two thousand was in Dubai. Was that the Dubai. This article does not say how. I big. don't know, George. You're the one who's been all over Europe. Well, and, and I've, I've only seen the Paris Opera from from outside, but Giovanna, don't you think it'd be Paris Opera? Probably. I think I feel like so. I've, I've been in Paris Opera, and I don't remember it being monstrous, but I mean, I remember it being Have gorgeous. You? Uh. It's actually the one in Palermo, Sicily. What? Yeah, apparently. Those that's Sicilians, what, that's what huh? Google's telling me. How about that? The Google. I, I was also going to guess the one in Munich, the Bavarian State Opera Wait, in that Munich. can't be right. That is pretty... Uh, yeah, check, check that out maybe on yeah, the break. Yeah, let's... let's yeah. One of our listeners, correct us. We need a, we need somebody to fill this. Well, up. yeah, folks, let us know what you think of this. Again, you can read the articles on our website. Uh, you can sound off via Twitter at... Opera box Wait, George, score. are we about to go to a break? Uh, are I got, we coming back to this? No. I have a question. Are these Final projects thought. being funded by the government? I'm sure they are. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure the one in Turkey is being funded by the government. I just shouldn't. I don't remember reading or, or what. But the one in the Emirates, where that's being funded from? Hmm. Yeah, that, it'd be in, it'd that be is, interesting a, good, that to is know. a good question. Oh, by the way, it is the Opéra Nationale de Paris. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was right. Yeah. I was going to say. Uh, I don't know how these are being funded privately, probably. I just, yeah, I mean, that that would be curious as well. And the only reason I brought that up is because, you know, we talk about <clears throat> it being an opera house and not a, a performing arts center specifically or even a mm-hmm. stadium. And I, you know, the my head, I thought, you know, how many places in the United States have had uh, taxpayers partially fund brand new stadiums for sports teams and stuff? And right. I'm not sure that that gets to happen right. a lot with um, 
performing arts or arts venues. Let us know what you think. You can give us a call, 847-866-WNUR, or leave us a message, 224-2189-BOX. You are indeed listening to WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. This is Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here. We got a lot of show left. Please, please, please stick around. We're going to be right back after this quick message. You're listening to Opera Box Score. The good news is that kids who learn a lot about the risks of drugs from their parents are half as likely to use drugs. So you need to start talking. Not sure what to say? The Partnership for a Drug-Free America's Illinois affiliate, Prevention First, has free brochures, posters, and other materials for parents, teachers, and anyone who wants to keep our kids from using drugs. For help, go to prevention.org. A message from Prevention First and WNUR. 55% of candidates for statewide office report spending at least one out of every four of their waking hours raising money for their campaigns. 23% report spending more than half their time raising money. Public Campaign is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to sweeping reform that aims to dramatically reduce the role of special interest money in America's elections and the influence of big contributors in American politics. To learn more, visit www.publiccampaign.org. That's P U B L I C A M P A I G N. This message brought to you by WNUR. Here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright. And Giovanna Jacques. Pop quiz. Oh, boy. Yeah, in case you didn't know it, that is what you're listening to, Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist <laughs> here. Uh, for the first time ever, we have a listener-generated Kenny, quiz. Yes. Kenny! 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 <laughs> Giovanna's chanting for Kenny. Kenny's a longtime friend of the show uh, out in Michigan. And fun fact, used to work at a place called uh, School Kids Records in my hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which sold uh, Small world. classical music. And man, I have hung out a lot at SK. K-R, as we used to call it. K-R. Uh, all right. Stand so up. now here's the here's the drill, you two, uh, Giovanna and Tobias. You guys are going to be working as a team this time. I, You know what? I just have to say I'm thrilled to not have to kick your butt on live radio <laughs> this week, Giovanna. It's very, Thank you, it's Toby. very gentlemanly of you. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we got five questions. And we've got five clips to play. You guys are going to work together. And all the operas in the quiz are from the 20th century. Uh, one of them is from the 21st century, I guess, technically. Okay. 15 total points at stake. And I want you guys to get 12 or better. Uh, yeah, maybe let's say five or better. <laughs> I want you to let's be... Low, let's lower the bar. That's a high standard. 12 out of 15, that's a B. Okay, you know so what? So you guys are saying you're going to get I'd worse like than you a to B? S- okay. Have you heard us? I took have a lot of t- pass-fail classes. What do you mean, have I heard you? I, I sit next to you. Have you heard us to take this quiz? Smelling you guys every week. Okay, I showered yesterday. Uh, no, yesterday. that was last week. That's right. why you're at mic one, and I'm at mic two. <laughs> For those who you obviously can't see, I'm on mic three, and I'm like in this corner of the studio alone. <laughs> hey, Toby! <laughs> Um, back on this okay, so here's the here's the first clip. You need to identify the composer, mm-hmm. the opera, and the performer. Oh, great! All right, oh, great. Do I dare do leave we... your mics on while you listen to this? Composer, opera. Yeah, Wait, go ahead. do we, we get won't. hints? 
Just just listen to that. Okay, thing, cool. all right. All right. Well, Kenny started with the easy stuff. I'll tell you that. Um, so, so what are you hearing, and how are you going to get to the answer? I hear Eric Owens. Uh, I can jump on that train. Okay. And be okay with that. Okay. With that. Um, definitely a preacher. Yeah. So, um, what's like the opera about the preacher? I'm gonna say that was uh, Susanna. Carlisle Floyd. And you'd be right. Was I? <gasps> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Toby, I'm, I'm so retiring. proud of you. I'm buying you ice cream. Aw. That's pretty that's nice. Awesome. Oh, wait, you're lactose intolerant. Yeah. I don't want to hear your I'm fart not... afterwards. Oh. <laughs> uh, you... oh, that's right. You are There's lactose no th- intolerant. I'm not. I, there's just one day yeah. I just... Yeah, I'm a little lactose intolerant. That's right. Uh, the that was are... good, though. Yeah, that and was that good. that was the scene there. I can't remember this. Uh, they're in the church, though. Amazing. Yeah, come was center. it Eric Owens? It was not. It was Samuel Ramey. Oh, was I'm it? sorry. Yeah, yeah. See? A fellow Kansan. Exactly. That's Kent Magano and the Orchestra de l'Opera de Lyon. Uh, but two out of three. Rare. Not bad. Not Ooh. bad. All right, we're going to cut to the chase here. Again, all these operas, 20th century, apart from one. So take a listen to this. I'm seeing some puzzled faces here, so I'm going to fade this one out. Um, but, uh, you know, talk out loud to me here, guys. How are you going to f- solve this? Um, so I'll <laughs> use text clues. I don't. I didn't necessarily recognize that piece at yeah. all, but I did hear she mentioned uh, bring her her robe, her crown, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. she said when Anthony calls. Mm-hmm. Um, she sounded, it sounded, I know it's not this, but it sounded a lot like this Bernard Rand's piece that mm-hmm. he wrote. Who's and he? I know it's Bernard Rand. Oh, sorry. Yep. I heard. Um, Go on. And I, I know that's not it, but I, w- I couldn't get past that. Um, well, Tobias, f- fill out your answer because of the text, because you, you did get that part right. Uh, I, but I don't even know what that would be from. <laughs> from Anthony, Anthony and... 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Really? Yeah. It is. The opera is Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, The composer, I I don't know how you would get this, actually. I'm trying to think if it sounds like another. I mean, this composer has written a really famous opera, which we did talk about on the last show. It's in English. What? But I didn't know he wrote this opera, Antony and Cleopatra, actually. I'm drawing a blank. Samuel Barber. Mm. Yeah, no, I knew that. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that was really the, beautiful. The last part of the question, besides composer and work, was what was the special occasion of, of this recording? But without knowing it was Samuel Barber and Antony and Cleopatra, you couldn't know that that opera opened the new Metropolitan Opera House. Oh, oh we wow. Could, we should have known September that. September 16th, 1966, the recording with Leontine Price, Thomas yeah. Shippers, and of course, Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and Chorus. Well, what a great clip. It was a great, what a great clip. clip. You know, we didn't get it, but well, that's got one. really cool. You got though. one. That's really cool. I'm glad we had that. Here's the next question. I don't feel entirely stupid about missing that. You one. shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I, I will say, I, and Oliver would be so proud of me, I could tell that was Leontine Price. Yeah. I wondered. And Did I you? was like, yeah. no. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. So for this third one, again, I need composer, I need opera, and I need like the featured performer. Okay. It's it's going to be the one person singing. I'll I'll leave it at that. All right, party people, talk to me. Is this Berg's Volkzeck? It is not. Oh, it sounded so similar yeah, to... Yeah, it's funny. It, it's actually later. The, um, it's later, yeah, is yeah. it? Mm-hmm. How much later, George? Um, well, how much later? Uh, but I, you know what? I agreed with the, the Berg. At least 60 years later. Oh. I would say. I mean, way later. Way oh. later. 60, 70 years even? I'm trying to remember when Wozzeck was composed um, by Berg. But, uh, yeah, it's... it's. Could you tell the singer on that one? If you can't no. know composer opera? I don't know. It's, it, well, what was interesting yeah. to me, and I... So if I were trying to... Just to give our in, our listeners an idea. Now, I do I know what it is? No. Because um, I'm not the smartest person in the world. <clears throat> but what I was listening to was the orchestration... And then I was also listening to the style of the singing to try and kind of, I, I feel like if you can really hone in on that, you can narrow or at least eliminate a lot of extraneous, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah, mm-hmm. it was certainly mm-hmm. not American. Well, he sounded, the, the singing sounded very shouty and yeah. in a declamatory way. Yeah. Russian or some kind of Slavic. Yeah. Hit me with it. Yeah. Uh, so the opera is Lear by Aribert Raimon. Yeah, I never, ever, ever would have like guessed Lear, that. Like King Lear, like King Lear? Like King Lear, yeah. Um, I saw base, 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 production base. of this at um, Theater under Wien uh, in Vienna, which was awesome. Wait, where did never you see it? it? Vienna. Everybody take a drink. Okay, thank you. Uh, singer was Dietrich Fischer Disco. Really? Yeah. Wow. My mind is blown. Yeah. That's not... I never would have guessed any of those things. Kenny, you have a stoop. So, yeah, you, you guys really struck out Hold on, on that one. It was Lear. I'm writing this down. Yeah, well, you should check this piece out, actually. Sure. It's, it's really, hmm. it, I would love to direct it, actually. The music is fantastic. And the story, of course, is one of my, I think it's my favorite Shakespeare play. King it's an Lear. awesome, it's awesome. It's a great show. Number four. Okay, here we go. I need to know the opera. Give me an easy one. I need to know the composer. And I want to know where it was premiered. Yeah. So take a listen to this. Thank you. 
visit, but thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray. Thus will the day seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn or summer's rose or human face divine. Shine inward, their plant eyes, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. Yeah, this is this is really hard. It's even hard to hear the words, and man, it'll take you back to like if you guys were not you were not English majors in college, so you wouldn't <laughs> even get this. Hardly. Uh any any sort of guesses at all on this? I think Kenny really has your number on this one. Um. The light. I don't know what John that, Milton. You're oh now you're close with Milton actually. Come on, what's, what's like the big work by John Milton? Uh, Starts with a letter P. Patrick. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the opera is called Paradise Lost. Okay, which well. is the big Milton poem. It's by uh, Penderecki. Oh, see, I recognize the poem. Yeah. Can I give him like half a point for that? Maybe? Yeah, you should give me a full point. For and that. The, the famous premiere was that that was premiered at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Cool. Oh, look at that. Hello. Yeah, exactly. So this is, this so is going downhill fast. It's not fast. just Oliver who can make us feel really silly. Well, I have an idea about, uh, Kenny's given me an idea about the pop quiz now, but I want to wrap this up. Okay, so here's our 21st century opera. Okay. I need composer, I need opera, and I need to know who wrote the libretto. So take okay. a listen. Guys, wrap it up. Their Tell me what you got. was horrible. I just want to say, didn't get anything from that. So there, thanks, yeah, I'll explain guys. why that was in a second. Um, um, it did. Oh, what is that? Sorry, it's my bad. Um, I honestly am completely stumped. The first like four measures sounded like Britain, and then I was like, wait, no, it's 21st century. 20... But then it got so if really. So it sounded out of... like Britain, though. Hold on, let's talk about that. I have no idea what it is, but if it sounded a little bit like Britain and it's 21st century... So that narrows it down for us. Hold on. You might have seen this show, too, actually. It's possible that you could have seen this. Uh, it's, in, it's in English, right? right. Yeah, yes. it's in English. Okay, so that's like a quarter point. But the recording is from the Netherlands. That's why their diction was so bad. Oh. Uh, uh, I want to guess... I don't know what show it is, but... I, I would guess a composer... And if it sounded like Britain, I would say John Adams. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and but if, I have no idea what show that well, is. Well, you're right. It is John Adams. So if it's John Adams, what has it got to be? I mean, what's like the big John Adams piece? Nixon when did he John? write Nixon? Uh, I, okay. We have a different concept of what the big John Adams piece <laughs> is, apparently. Oh, uh, that's big because it's got an airplane. Yeah, I know. That recording is from Dr. Atomic. Oh. With the libretto by Peter Sellers, who also wrote, um, who also directed the show. Sorry. So oh, there really? we go. Yeah, yeah, he directed it as well. Good job, So well, let me see. One, two, three. Well, you guys got four out of Wait, 15. What? You got four out of 15. <laughs> okay, but to be fair, two of those were completely out of our reach. Yeah. Kenny, really appreciate the quiz. I definitely appreciate it. Clearly, yeah, awesome, Central Music Kenny. is not the, the forte of our crew. But, uh, <laughs> folks, or, or next time we do a pop quiz, <laughs> I, I do have another idea on how to do this. Uh, and Kenny has inspired me. And Kenny opened up our horizons a lot tonight. So thank you very I much, really Kenny. did. Really appreciate it. Uh, stick around. we got the two-minute drill coming up next on Opera Box Score, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. This is WNUR. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. The composer, John Adams, and his frequent collaborator, the librettist and director Peter Sellers, are getting the band back together with Girls of the Golden West, a new opera about the women of California's gold rush. It will receive its world premiere at San Francisco Opera in 2017, the company announced on Tuesday. The Perfect American, the controversial Philip Glass opera that recounts the final months in the life of Walt Disney, will get its U.S. premiere next year at Long Beach Opera. The opera had its world premiere in 2013 as a co-production between Teatro Real in Madrid and the English National Opera in London. In the 1950s, as members of Congress were rooting out suspected communists and government in Hollywood, they broadened their search to include homosexuals and lesbians. That crusade, dubbed the Lavender Scare, is at the center of Fellow Travelers, a new stage production that received its world premiere in Cincinnati. The opera was developed as part of the New Works program at Cincinnati Opera, and the creative team includes three gay men in their 30s, director Kevin Newberry, librettist Greg Pierce, and the composer Gregory Spears. That's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions, plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go inside the huddle. We're back here on Opera Box Score and on WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Time to go inside the huddle, and our guest is Erica Schuler. Now, Oliver, who's a snob, mentions a few people in this interview who are very well-known in the early music community, and he says you are not expected to know. That would be Paul Odette, who's a lutenist and also the co-musical director of operas at the Boston Early Music Festival. And he also mentions Drew Minter, who's an American countertenor who teaches at Vassar and has become a specialist in historically informed stagings of Baroque opera. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is Erica Schuler, and you're listening to Opera Box Score. So I am in the apartment uh, on the north side of Chicago of Erica Schuler. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for having me here. The reason why I wanted to interview you this time around is because I just saw you last weekend in the Haymarket Summer Opera program where you sang scenes from Popea. Mm-hmm. I just feel like Popea is like the perfect role for you because of all the things you've done leading up to now, all your training and sort of how I feel maybe in Chicago, you've stolen the mantle of the early music diva and you are getting all of these gigs. So we're going to talk about some of these gigs, um, especially the Haymarket stuff. Uh, but let's wind it back a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your training, like where you went to school and, and what are the first programs that you did? Sure. Um, so I was actually really fortunate and was in the Milwaukee public school system back during kind of its heyday with all of the arts programs. So I actually did elementary through high school at art magnet schools, which was really helpful for me. So I had a lot of good music training and uh, was fortunate enough to get uh, selected to attend the Eastman School of Music as an undergraduate and did a double major there in vocal performance and music education. At that time, uh, for me, I was singing and then coaching other students. And so performing and teaching were really the same thing for me. So heading into my undergraduate, I wanted to make sure I, I continued to explore both parts of that of me in that way. And while you were at Eastman, did you 
get to work with Paul Odette? I did. Uh, not right away. I didn't actually know about the early music department for a couple of years. It was like the best kept secret at Eastman mm -hmm. in a way. And um, a good friend of mine, Zach Wilder, who is also big in the early music world, uh, at one point at the end of our sophomore year said, why aren't you singing in the early music mm -hmm. ensemble? And my response was, there's an early music ensemble. <laughs> And uh, I auditioned, and junior and senior year, I did a lot of work uh, with them, which was amazing for me. I learned so much, um, and uh, it really started pointing me in the direction that I that I ultimately wanted to try. So would you say that as an undergrad, you were not focused on early music, but it sort of started to come into your... It's funny, because I was the kid who always brought Purcell pieces in, mm -hmm. and... In college, it was sort of the same. I'd bring in Scarlatti and mm. Vivaldi, and, mm. and nobody quite knew what to do with me because I wasn't bringing in, you know, Mozart all the time, although I love Mozart, and I wasn't bringing in all of these opera yeah. arias that I wanted to learn. Only when I met Paulo Dead, I was like, oh, there's there's an outlet for me. Oh, my okay. gosh, I'm not the only one who loves this. So did he point you in the right direction after that? He did. He sure did. He uh, sent me off to work with Ellen Hargis at the Vancouver Yay. Early Music Festival. Ellen, and I met her and Stephen Adby and got to be in, you know, a week's worth of classes with people who are as crazy about early music as I was. And, and my, that was my first intro to gesture and yeah. and So dance. for our audiences, Ellen Hargis is known around Chicago as the American music diva, early music diva, her and Julianne Baird. Uh, Ellen Hargis's career is a little bit more on the renaissance side, mm -hmm. but definitely has a big dose of Baroque in it, whereas Julianne Baird's more on the high Baroque side. But so that's Ellen Hargis. Can you tell us about Stephen Adby? Oh, Stephen Adby. My gosh. He's a delightful, tall, beautiful man <laughs> who um, was married to the, the main choreographer at the Boston Early Music Festival for many years before they uh, split. And he trained us all in Baroque dance and gesture and did our first staging of Dido and Aeneas there, which is the, the piece that we kind of worked on and presented during the week. And just a very generous soul who gave me intro to what it was yeah. to move in that in that yeah. way with grace and elegance and you know specific meaning that supported your text and it, it took me many many years to kind of ingrain all of that I still don't always do it but yeah. and that was a really nice piece of this Haymarket Opera workshop mm -hmm. this summer was having an opportunity to stand with all of these other people of various levels and mm -hmm. How does your how does the message of your body shift by just changing where your weight goes? Mm -hmm. And um, you know it's sometimes hard to see in yourself, but when you're looking at other people and the way other people are built and the energy that comes in behind their their motions, it's it's a little easier to distinguish kind of what you want to go for. So it was, it was a neat experience. So I feel like you've sort of done the impossible and that you have had major roles at um, Boston Early Music Festival. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, yeah. that's sort of like a a very small market over there. Uh, <laughs> and they, the same singers seem to get cast all the time. And they're amazing. They they're and they loyal. definitely deserve it. They're very loyal But um, you, cracked, you cracked through the glass yeah, ceiling. <laughs> this was mainly due to Paul Odette. He got me and Zach Wilder our first auditions. Auditions, mm -hmm. mind you, not roles. He, he gave us the opportunity to come and sing for the directors. And... Um, we were sort of their first entree into the young artist program that they have now. Mm -hmm. We were these babies, you know, yeah. next to everybody else. And we were just really enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. And um, I was first cast as a choir, as a chorus member. Mm -hmm. Were you a, in Boris Goodenough? Or? No, I was in Psyche. Okay. I started off as a chorus member. And then... Um, I think the next show that I did with them was Popea, and I was really lucky and got you were Damigella. I was Damigella and La Fortuna. Okay. And um, man, was that an experience. I was so eager to prove myself and so scared that I wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. And right after that kind of hit the Great Recession hit, mm -hmm. and they stopped hiring most of their smaller roles mm -hmm. outside of Boston. So it was just the Bostonites who were getting hired and then the major roles across the seas. And um, it took a good five years before I could get back in. And it just so happened I was working with Ellen. I went to one of her concerts and I got to throw myself in front of Paul again and say, hey, could I actually audition for you again? He went, oh, yeah, of course. Why haven't you written to Kathy yeah. Faye? It was great. So let's talk about Haymarket Opera. Sure. Uh, so everybody who's listening to the show knows I talk about Haymarket so much. Because they're fabulous. Yes. 
And um, I saw you again for the first time. I, I t- didn't remember that much after seeing you at Milwaukee. Yeah. But then uh, Pimpinone, mm-hmm. I was like, who is this person? I remember her from somewhere. And then there was that Bizarro Scarlatti thing. El yeah. Equivoca- I don't even know how to say it. Equivoci nel sembiante. That. <laughs> Where, it took hey, us three weeks yeah. to pronounce it too. <laughs> where it seemed like you were getting kind of typecast into these comic roles. Mm-hmm. And then last year, Amadigi Di Gaula, what is the name of the role that you're saying? Oriana. Oriana was like the main heroine, yep. uh, which was a complete 180. It was from, a 180. And that was where I feel like, okay, here is this major talent in Chicago. Oh, with especially, I mean, your singing is, is apparent. I mean, everybody learns how to sing eventually, but just with the gesture. And the nobility, you know, that you portrayed, which was so different than the roles you did with mm-hmm. uh, the comic roles. So can we talk about your relationship with Haymarket? And uh, I, I suspect yeah. you have some future plans with them. I really can't say enough good things about Haymarket and Craig Trumpeter and Jerry Luzike, who are just, they're the most human people you'll ever meet. It's, it's rare in my experience to come across a company that really wants to develop you as an artist and a mm-hmm. person. And that's, that's what I've experienced with them. So yeah, I got, I got cast in Pimpinone with Ryan DeRyke and we got to do this wild two person, two language show with things flying across the stage. It was a marathon, that thing. I mean, it, the bird hat you alone never, made it. you never leave the stage <laughs> no, we never and you leave. sing, was it eight arias, 12 oh, arias? I or? don't even remember, but it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot of singing, but it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And then yes, Liak Vivochina Symbiante, I got to play the little spitfire little younger sister mm-hmm. in the pantsuit yeah. who just was busting with immature sexuality. Yeah. Um, and when Craig offered me the role uh, in Amadigi di Gaula, what he said was, we've been casting you as these comic characters and I'd love to give you a chance to do something different to to give you a chance to um, develop this other piece of you that I know is there and how cool is that that somebody was looking out for me in that way and who wanted to give me an opportunity and saw the potential for you to do that showcase another thing that I hadn't been able to do before so Haymarket's just been a great um, a great support for me a great kind of tribe for me to grow with. These are wonderful musicians who are at the top of their game as musicians themselves, but then who really want to put forth effort to develop good talent in the city and put on quality work. And there's just, there's nothing better than working for a group of people like that. So I have to ask, um, did you ask to participate in the summer? I did. Okay. I did. So that to me is mind blowing. And like, it just goes to show that you can never stop learning to me. That was my thought. Okay, good. Can you talk, can you expand yeah, upon that? Absolutely. You... No, I, um, I wanted an opportunity to explore things, uh, in my own, you know, to have another set of eyes, looking at my gesture, looking at my body, listening to my instrument, a kind of refresher course of looking through text, finding, um, cues in the music, I just wanted a place where I wasn't expected to perform, you know, perform a role and give out to an audience, but this was really for me. This Mm -hmm. was a chance for me to develop, to kind of go back to school, go back to basics and just refine what I felt I already knew and uh, to do it with, with some really fabulous people. And as an added benefit, I think I was the oldest person there and the person who had kind of been out there for a little bit. And it was really cool to work with these people who are just getting out of school, just starting. Some of One of the girls was 17, mm-hmm. immense talent at 17, and to see where they were and to help where I could and to stand back and, and watch what they could offer and to learn from what they had intrinsically was just really a nice experience. And you know, I guess some could argue I was a little too old to do the program, but... There was such a clear difference in what you were presenting and what the others were presenting. I mean, it just seemed like you were in a different league. But I also want to know, like, how much you felt drew uh, draw, drew out of you. That's a weird way of phrasing that, you know. Yeah. How, was he able to bring out things that you forgot or was he able to help you develop things that you already were working on? Or... Well, I, I think um, he has... A different perspective than mm-hmm. than others I've worked with, and so just having his eyes saying, "This is stronger, this is not so strong," stand stiller, 
or move more, or I don't see the right amount of energy coming out of you. That was already just really helpful, just to have somebody giving you immediate feedback on what you're doing um, without that added stress of we have a performance to put on in one week and you have to get yeah. this perfect. And he, just musically speaking, kind of had ideas that I hadn't considered. And it doesn't matter whether we agreed or didn't. It was an opportunity to hear a different perspective and to consider that. Um, he took a lot of interest in the rests of the music. And I mean, let's face it, he's been out there performing way longer yeah. than I have and has done a lot more than I have. I would be a fool not to listen to his yeah. opinions. Um, so musically, that was sort of where I got the most with him because he just had a different feeling for this music than I did. And I've performed it a few times um, not as Popea. So I had these really strong opinions about it and have him kind of crack those opinions yeah. down the center and say, ah, consider it this way was immensely useful. I have to say that we were talking about feet earlier on. And mm -hmm. I, I think one of the biggest things that I noticed with your performance was how grounded you were and how you did not move too much like you were up for the upper body was so beautiful but the legs were firmly planted that was hard earned i'll tell you what yeah. i was not like that when i started yeah i mean so many young people feel like they've got to move around and chase yeah. and like squat. you see so much bending of the knees all the time there's you know? a lot and and constantly moving and and of course that a lot of that comes from the the need for validation and for yeah. wanting to do so well yeah. and wanting to be interesting and a very hard one change for me mm -hmm. through lots of practice and lots of coaching and wonderful teachers was it's not your responsibility to go to the audience. Mm -hmm. Your job is to do good work within yourself. And the more stable you stay in yourself, the more interesting you actually are on stage. You have to trust that what you're doing is enough. So I was not always like that, yeah. but it was a, it's a really beautiful compliment. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I, well, we did not plan this. <laughs> The thing that I've noticed with the young singers a lot is that they don't realize how um, they when they walk across the stage, what their gait looks like. Yes. You know? And there are some short people who take really big steps yes. because they think they need to like make up for being short, you know, mm -hmm. and it ends up taking away their power. You know? It does. And um, yeah, just your your gait, your 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 pace was so powerful, you well, know, and you're not short year. either. I'm not <laughs> short, I'm five, six, but yeah. um, I think a lot of that does come from experience. Yeah. It's just being on the stage and having directors correct you and then spending countless hours like they did mm. back in the day, yeah. looking in, in a mirror, walking along and looking at yourself in a mirror and posing in front of the mirror mm. and um, also being um, insanely clear about what your intention is and, I can always tell when I watch myself in videotape when my mind wandered. Mm -hmm. I can always notice when whatever I was thinking just wasn't detailed mm -hmm. enough. There's there's sort of a gap that happens where the energy drops and something's not quite as clear. So, I mean, again, working with such fabulous people, working in Boston, working with fabulous artists like Carolyn Sampson that I can learn from as I watch, just watching other people, I think, was was an education in and of itself for me. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Fantastic stuff there from Erica Schuler and Oliver Camacho. Thank you both very much for doing the interview for us. Over to Good Call, Bad Call. Giovanna, what you got? I have uh, one that is, I think is really cool. On the off-season, both um, Symphony Center and Lyric Opera have been renting out their building to more mainstream artists, such as Jane Lynch, Smashing Pumpkins, or Kristen Chenoweth at CSO. So I think that's a pretty cool idea. Tobias Wright. My good call is that later this week, Giovanna Jacques is going to be jumping on a plane going to France <laughs> and going to spend some uh, time in Europe with her mother, and it's going to be beautiful. And my good call comes from actually one of our listeners in Iowa. It's Laura, who says, hey, you were doing that episode about summer festivals. Don't forget about Des Moines Metro Opera Festival, which has an incredible season this year. Falstaff, Manon, Orfei et Ruidis, and of course, the Philip Glass piece, Galileo Galilei. Thanks, Laura, for the tip.
That's it for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Hey, you can always email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook and Twitter, Opera Box Score. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archive episodes and learn more about our team. Our next podcast is yours for the taking on Monday, June 27. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Giovanna Jacques, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, especially if you're hot and sweaty. Sweet Street Beat is up next. You're listening to WNUR Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. Bye.